Thanks for listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. This is a sermon from our series, I Am, a picture of Christ through the Gospel of John. If you would like to find out more about us, please visit our website at cbcsavannah.com. Hope you're doing well. Um, For those of you who may be new or we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Clint and I'm one of the pastors on staff. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here with you. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 15. That's where we're gonna be this morning. Um, as we spend our time kind of working through this summer series through, um, we're calling I Am. And so if you've been here with us, you know that we have been in this series that's kind of rooting us into the Gospel of John and really these seven statements that Jesus makes in various different contexts where he's claiming to be God and then he adds a piece onto it that kind of lines it out in a different way for us to tap into and to enter into who Jesus actually is. Not just the things that he's done, but we figure out who he actually is. And so this morning we're gonna read one of those statements and spend some time in it. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And so we're gonna talk about that today. But where we are in the story is a portion of John's gospel that scholars, Bible scholars call the farewell discourse. And they call it that because the first 12, 13 chapters of John's gospel is kind of like three years of his life. And then the last, or these chapters 13, 14 to 17-ish is really zoomed in on the last week of Jesus's life and his public ministry. And so um, I came across a quote this week that kind of helped frame this up for me. I just wanted to share it with you. It's not gonna be on the screen. I'm just gonna read it. Um, But it was a blogger or something. The guy said this. Sometimes I joke about what I would do if I knew that I only had a day or a week left to live. Would I eat junk? Would I go crazy? Would I buy whatever I want without recourse, etc.? Today it hit me that Jesus knew and he washed his friend's feet. And so what he's talking about is in John 13, the Bible tells us that Jesus is at dinner with his closest friends and at the end of that dinner, he gets down, he takes off his outer garment, he ties around his waist and he starts to wash the dirtiest parts of them. Really weird for them culturally. This is Jesus, the last week, the last few hours of his life, this is kind of the posture that he took on, one of serving his friends. And then he starts to teach them, right? He wants to lay out for them the most important things that he wants them to know before he goes to the cross. And then we get to John 15, and this is functionally Jesus' last few hours, right? His last day before going to the cross, and this is what he wants. What we're gonna read, and I'm saying this because I want you to tap into this. This is what he wants his disciples to have ringing in their ears as they see him on the cross. Right? These are his functional last words to his closest followers that they would remember this, John 15, verse one, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So it's hard for us to understand the fullness of what Jesus is saying for a number of reasons, but primarily because We aren't first century Jews. But for them, this imagery of the vine and the vineyard would have been really significant for them. So all through the Old Testament, you see this imagery pop up where this prophecy about Israel as the vine of God, the planting of God, even the vineyard of God. And for them, it was this huge source of pride. Like it would make them feel proud that that would be said about them because it meant they were chosen by God. It meant they belonged to him, that they were his planting, that they were supposed to be the ones who would bear the fruit of God in the world. That was this source of pride, this imagery, when they hear, hey, you are the vineyard, you are my vine, you are my beauty here on earth. And so it's also, this isn't a one-to-one illustration, but it's also similar to the way we think about the flag. 
So you see the stars and the stripes, and for many Americans, there's a sense of pride that comes up in us, right? It's belonging to something bigger than ourselves. It's, it's feeling a sense of worth and value that I am American. This is a similar way that they would tap into this idea of a vineyard or a vine. And so when Jesus says to them, I am the true vine, this is Jesus saying to his disciples, hours before the cross, I have come to be for you what you wasn't, weren't able to be and I have come to do for you what you haven't been able to do. And the reason why is because all through the Old Testament, yes, there's this imagery of the vine of the vineyard, but every time you see it almost, it's used negatively. Like this prophecy about Israel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, it points out, yeah, you are the vine of God, you were the vineyard of God, but you have not been able to be fruitful the way you're supposed to. You haven't been able to do what God wanted you to do or be who he wanted you to be. And again, Jesus in John 15, hours before the cross says, I am the true vine, meaning I've come to be what you couldn't be. I've come to do what you haven't been able to do. And I think the reason why Jesus says this is because he understands that his disciples, both then, what we're reading and now, disciple meaning follower of Christ, those of us who are following after him, he understands something about us that we have a proclivity towards self-reliance. And here, let me explain that. Um, it might even be even more true for us now because this is an incredibly American idea, but we live our lives through this lens of, I can be whatever I wanna be, right? We can do whatever we want to do. If it's up to us, right? If we work hard enough, if we do enough, then we will accomplish our goals. And for some reason, if we feel like we don't accomplish our goals, it's not because we, uh, or we didn't have the chances, right? If we had the better coach, then we would have made that team or whatever it is. We feel like we can do what we wanna do. We can be what we wanna be. We should work hard or whatever. We bring this idea, the self-reliance. We can do whatever we want. We bring this into our Christianity and we let it define our relationship with God. And what happens in this system of self-reliance is we inevitably bounce back and forth between pride or self-righteousness and then feeling like a failure. Here's how it works. So if, if you're doing well, the, whatever the things that you think you're supposed to do in life, if you're doing well, you feel like you're hitting your spots. You feel good about yourself. And you think, hey, how does God think about me? Well, of course he loves me. Why wouldn't he love me, right? I'm great. And then we look at other people who are struggling and, and we're not, and so we become prideful. We become self-righteous and we lack grace for them because we wonder why they can't get their lives together like we could. It's what happens, we have a proclivity towards self-reliance, it's up to us, look at how good I'm doing, of course God loves me and why can't you get it together? But then what happens when we mess up? We feel dirty, we feel like a failure, we feel this need to run and hide from God because there's no way he could possibly love us. We begin to resent the people around us who seem like they're not struggling because we want what they have and we can't get there. This is, we, we bounce back and forth between this place because we live in this spot. This is how many of us live our lives of thinking it's up to us, right? We can do whatever we wanna do. We can be whatever we wanna be. It means it's up to us. We think we're the vine. We think we're the planting from God. It's up to us to bear this fruit. We have to do enough. We have to work enough. We have to be enough. This is human nature. This is the problem that we all face living in a Genesis 3 world and this is what Jesus came to do away with. And so as he gets nearer and nearer to the cross, he wants his disciples to understand he is the true vine. He's saying you thought of yourself as the vine, you thought of yourself as being chosen by God, but even in that, no matter how hard you try or no matter how much you do, you still kinda constantly feel like a low-grade disappointment. In our lives, that's how we feel. Or maybe it manifests itself in this way where you have this fear of being found out. This fear of being exposed as a fraud. And you don't even really know why. Why do I feel that way? 
You get a random phone call from that person that you miss. You get an email from your boss or a call says, hey, I need you to come to my office. And all of a sudden you're going, what did I do wrong? See how this manifests itself in our life and we feel like a disappointment because we feel like we can't live up to the hype. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. In verse five, he adds a piece onto it. He says, and you are the branches. He's saying that even though you have been unable to actually be fruitful the way that you were supposed to, I've come to make a way for you to bear fruit in your lives. I've come to bring you a belonging that is better, a belonging that isn't up to your performance or what you can accomplish on your own, but it's up to what I will accomplish on your behalf. And so now your confidence and your worth is, is not up to what you can do into this vine that will never live up to its full potential, but now you are in me, the true vine. And so since this is who Jesus says he is, he says, I am the true vine. Since that is true, I think there are two things from this passage of scripture that should shape the way we live our lives. So if you are living in, call yourself a Christian, would identify that way and say, I'm following after Jesus with my life. Two things in this passage that we should seek to do. I'm gonna give you two words to remember. The word remain and the word refine. This shapes and frames this passage. So we should seek to remain and we should expect to be Refined. So let's look at it together. Verse one, Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser, meaning he is the one who takes care of the vine. And if you notice there, there's only two different types of branches. There are those who are fruitful and those who aren't fruitful. So what's going on here is Jesus is using this illustration and he's building out for his disciples the way the Christian life is supposed to work. To put it as simply as I can, it's this. What Jesus is saying is to be a Christian is to bear fruit. That there is a complete correlation there that if you are a Christian, you will bear fruit. His point is there is no such thing as an unfruitful Christian because fruit is the identifying mark of whether or not you're a Christian. And so we need to define what it means to bear fruit, and I'll do that in a second. But what happens is I think we create all these different categories of Christian that don't exist in the Bible. Like there's junior varsity Christians and varsity Christians, there's ones who are actually on the field and there are those of us who are just sitting on the bench. We create all these categories for Christian that don't exist in the Bible. And if we're honest, what we're talking about here is people who kind of follow Jesus, maybe on Sundays, maybe you throw it in here and there whenever you need him, but then everything else, you got it. Then there are people who really follow after Jesus. That's kind of the categories we make, but the Bible doesn't have those. It says that Christians, all of them bear fruit. Not necessarily the same amount of fruit, but they all bear fruit. Again, because the identifying mark of a Christian is to bear fruit. So what kind of fruit is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the fruit that comes up in us, comes up out in our lives as we're transformed by the gospel. So as we believe the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and we plant that in our lives and this fruit starts to come out in us, the Holy Spirit enters us and sets us free from living a life of self-reliance. As we talked about of thinking, it's up to me to do enough, it's up to me to be enough to, to earn the approval of God and to earn the approval of the people around me and we're set free from that and we realize we can depend on him. And so this isn't the, the only way to think about the fruit that comes up in us but, but one way, a helpful way to think about it is Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23, Paul kind of gives a list of, 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 to the uh, Galatian church of the fruit of the Spirit. Should be on the screen. If not, just listen up. So the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
So he doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. He says the fruit of the Spirit because it's singular, right? It's one fruit and all of these things that he just listed off, love, joy, peace, patience, all these things are flavors, individual flavors of the same fruit, the one fruit that comes up in our life when we believe who Jesus is and what he's done. When his power, we attach ourselves to his vine so his power can flow through us and bear its fruit in our lives. This is what is produced in us when we have the Holy Spirit and what Jesus is saying in order for us to be fruitful in this type of way, fruitful in love in your life and joy and peace. In order to do that, we must remain and we must be refined. So let me show you where I get this. Verse four. It says, abide in me and I in you. As the branches cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That word in the original language means nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So the word abide here, it means to remain or stay. That's where I'm getting this idea of, of us remaining. It means to be deeply connected to, right? So it carries with it this idea of dwelling or living. And so what Jesus is saying, as he uses this illustration of the vine and the branches, is actually pretty simple. It's a branch that isn't connected to the vine. It can't bear fruit because it doesn't have a source of life. And we understand this, right? This is pretty simple. We get it. Like if you had a fruit tree in your yard and a branch fell off, but then it continued to year after year after year bear fruit, you would figure out a way to monetize that, right? Because that's not normal. Just this branch not connected to the trunk, not connected to the root, but it's still doing its job. Like that, We know that that's not what happens. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, if you wanna be fruitful, if you want your life to matter, to have value, to have worth coming out of it, then you must abide. You must remain in the true vine, remain connected to Jesus as your source of life and confidence and worth, that he would become the thing that you derive your sense of worth from, not what people say about you, not what you say about you, not what you do, but what Jesus has done for you and as a result, who he says you are. That becomes our source of life and then his power, we connect ourselves to that vine and his power and his life flow through us and begin to bear its fruit in our lives. And so, maybe this will help. I think this is what he's saying. Um, my wife and I have been married for eight years and in those eight years I've learned some things, okay? Not a lot of things, but some things. It is, there is a list of things, but it's a short list and, my wife's like real short, you know, she's back there. Um, for example, um, some, I learned this, that some arguments just aren't worth it. That's one of the things I've learned in marriage, right? Eight years has taken me that long, but I think I'm there now. That just all hills aren't worth dying on, you know? Like I'm a kind of guy who's just like, if I believe it, I'm going after it. And so this created a lot of conflict in, our, in my home. Um, here's one of them, when I asked my wife to marry me, I had an internship at a church and my pre-tax income was $12,000 a year, okay? So as you might imagine, the majority of our struggles early on in marriage were centered around how we were gonna steward and manage our finances. So to be fair, it's not that she was going on all these shopping sprees, you know? It's just that we were approaching marriage from two different sides of the spectrum altogether. So my budget plan, my financial plan before marriage and coming into marriage was don't spend money, okay? That was my budget. Don't spend it, because you ain't got it, you know what I mean? Like, it was pretty easy to follow. Like, I ain't got it, I don't spend it, it's great. So I pretty much survived off of whatever leftovers I could get from various meetings at the church. And I would eat them long past I was supposed to. And then I get married, and all of a sudden, she's not cool with that, you know? <laughs> so things have to change quite a bit. 
Um, anyways, one day she went grocery shopping for us. I mean, we've been married a couple months. So she comes home and I'm trying to learn this thing that, all, that not all arguments are worth it. And so we're unpacking the groceries and she comes home and it's this new exciting season, you know, we're married and she's happy and we're unpacking the groceries and I'm trying to be helpful and I'm, I'm thinking like filtering through things like, oh, what about the Kroger brand of that, you know? And um, I don't think we really need this, do we? Um, that, that kind of stuff, you know, I'm trying to learn it and holding it down and I come up to this one bag of had flowers in it and I just couldn't do it, couldn't stop. <laughs> and I said, uh, it had a big sticker on it, fresh cut flowers, right? Um, and I'm like, hey, what's this? And she goes, well, you know, I mean, she just jumped right into it. I thought it would be pretty, right, to have these flowers on our table, and it would be, they'd be beautiful, and they would smell nice, and it would be great to have these fresh-cut flowers in our house, you know, and I honestly don't remember what I said after that, but I promise you it was not evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. <laughs> there was no gentleness, no kindness kind of circling around in that conversation, but I'm pretty sure I said something like, why in the world would you spend money that we don't have on flowers that are gonna die in a couple of days, okay? And so, just in case you're wondering, that conversation did not go well. But like I said, I've learned, okay? Some arguments aren't worth it. Here's why I'm telling you this. The Bible in John 15, all jokes aside, is saying this. The best, the best that your life can possibly be outside of Christ are those cut flowers that it might look great, it might smell incredible, it might be seemingly beautiful for a season, but make no mistake about it, they've already started dying. From the moment that they're cut from the vine, they're severed from their root, they have no source of life, they've already started dying. And this is what verse two and verse six are saying, that if you do not abide in me, you will wither and die. Because apart from abiding in Christ, you are at best cut flowers. You might be able to look pretty for a little while on the outside, but inside you have already started dying. So maybe you're wondering, how does this apply to my life? It's this, it's the moment that you look to anything or anyone other than Jesus as your source of worth or your source of confidence in this life, you have failed to abide in Christ. And we do this all the time. If you're in this room, most of us would probably never outright reject Jesus and say, hey, we don't need him, but what does your life say that you're abiding in? Right, what vine have you attached yourself to hoping that its power would flow through you and bear its fruit in your life? And so maybe this is helpful. Take an inventory, just think for a moment about your life. The past couple of days, weeks, months, just a short term, not your whole life, just the last few weeks. Think about how you spent your time. Think about how you've spent your money. What does your life say you're planted into? What vine are you running to time and time again hoping that its power would flow through you and bear its fruit in your life? It could be your marriage. It could even be in in, in kind of a fantasy space. It could be the marriage you wish you had. It could be your kids or the kids that you wish you had. It could be the grades or grades you wish you had, right? Or it could be relationships, friendships, boyfriend, girlfriend. It could be yourself. It could be success in your career. It could be anything. And Jesus is saying in John 15 that all those things are good things to be celebrated, but they're not ultimate things. And all those things are like those little packets that come with flowers when you buy them from the grocery store. They can boost you for a moment. They might make you look pretty or feel great for a season, but they will not last. And Jesus says in verse one, I am the true vine because there are false vines. 
that we dig into and we think this is what's gonna give me source of life, this is what's gonna give me worth. He says, I'm the true vine, I am the real source and giver of life. He says, abide in me, remain in me, stay attached to me, connected to me, because this is the thing that you should be doing as a Christian. Remain in and abide in Christ. So much so that when you're with him, it feels like you're home. Remember this word has this idea of dwelling to it. This word abide in the original language is the dwelling. So when you're with Jesus, it's like your home and if you're gone for too long, you feel homesick. Because you feel yourself starting to wither. You've moved yourself out from the vine, life isn't flowing through you anymore and you feel that sense of restlessness of just like, what's missing right here? Abiding in Christ is what's missing. So what does it mean to abide in Jesus? I think it means this, that you build your life on the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and as a result, who he says you are. That everything from your life springs from this place of who Jesus is, what he's done, and as a result, who he says you are. This word here, abide, is in the present active tense, which means that you don't just abide once. Whatever the past tense of abide is, abode or abided or whatever, right? You don't abide one time but you continually come back to it. It means we never graduate from the gospel or outgrow our need for Jesus because he is the source and the giver of the only life that satisfies. So on a practical level, out of the headspace, here's what it means to abide. I think it means that, that you need to spend some time identifying the things in your life that stir up in you a greater affection for Jesus. So you think about the things in your life that stir up in you a greater desire and affection for Jesus. Identify the things that you do and say, the things that you watch, the people you're around that stir up in you. They make it easier for you to remember who Jesus is and what he's done and as a result, who you are. You identify those things and this is gonna sound crazy. Do those things. That's what it means to abide in Jesus. We try to make it super spiritual or, or make it really difficult to do, but in reality, it's just do the things that stir up in your heart a, a greater desire and a greater affection for Jesus. And then on the other hand, we need to identify the things in our life that make it difficult for us to remember who Jesus is and what he's done. The things in our life that we do, the people we're around, the things we say, the things we watch, whatever it might be, we identify the things that put roadblocks in our path of remembering who Jesus is. And then this is gonna sound equally as crazy, stop doing those things. That's what it means to abide in Jesus, that we would chase after the things in life that drive us to him and that we wouldn't chase things that don't because he is the source and the giver of the only life that satisfies. So for all of us, abiding in Jesus will include these three things, reading our Bible, praying, and living our life in community with other believers. For every single one of us, it will include that. My guess is, if you are struggling to abide, when I said take an inventory of your life and think about how you've lived the past couple weeks, your, the way you spent your time and your money, if you feel like you've drifted from abiding in Jesus, I would start there. Bible reading, prayer, and community with other believers because the ultimate goal isn't that there would be one fruit on a vine. How beautiful is it when it's a vineyard? It's the value of community. This is what God's trying to create in us, not in just me or you, but in us. It's the beauty of the church. So I think it's easy for us to dismiss this, right? Christians say, yeah, 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 I get it, abide in Jesus. But we make almost every important decision in our life apart from considering how it affects our ability to abide in Christ. We make major life decisions, like we pick jobs based on how much money we'll make and what the benefits package will be, and then once we've moved, once we've uprooted our family and uprooted our lives and kind of planted ourselves in a new city, now we start to consider how can I abide here? 
We do it backwards. And students do this, right? We pick our major based on um, who knows what. We seldom consider, yeah, maybe this will lead to a career that pays well, but what if I'm gonna hate my job? What if God's wired me a completely different way not to be a financial planner? What if I love people, but I've chosen a career path that puts me in a cubicle by myself all the time and I'm wasting away, and then 10, 12, 15 years down the road, you're ticked at God for letting your life be so miserable, but you never brought him into the conversation to consider how you might abide in the first place. Which shows us the vine that we're abiding in, doesn't it? Not the true vine. And Jesus says, that's who I am, I'm the true vine. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit. Don't miss that because of the illustration. He just said that this is the way to a life of love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and on and on, right? And he says, against such things there is no law in Galatians 5 because there isn't a single person in his room who says, you know what, I wanna be less loving. Not a single person in this room who says, no thanks, I'm fine hating everyone and everything and being afraid and anxious all the time. And Jesus says, Abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. And the, and the Apostle Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. This is the invitation on the table for us if we abide in Jesus. This is what's gonna come up in us. So if we wanna be fruitful, we must remain and we must or we should expect to be refined. Look at verse two. It says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So the Bible just said every branch that bears fruit will be pruned. Remember the fruit we're talking about, the fruit of the Spirit. So people who are, this is what it just said, people who are in Christ, who have planted their lives in him and they've seen the fruit of the Spirit come up in them, they've rejected this sense of self-reliance, they've depended on him, and now this fruit is starting to come up in their lives now. The Bible just said every single one of those people will be pruned, meaning their lives will be refined by God. And the question we have to answer is why? Why would God prune what is already fruitful? And he tells us, he says we're refined so that we might bear more fruit, so we could become even more fruitful. And chances are you're never gonna see John 15 verse two printed on a t-shirt, right? You're not gonna see it posted on Instagram behind a picture of a, a nice uh, hammock, you know, by the beach. Like you're not gonna see John 15 verse two, I'm gonna be pruned. But I think we should. This is good news, and here's why. The, the Bible just said that God will not only allow difficult things to happen to us, but he will oftentimes be the one who initiates that pruning work in our lives. And I know what you're thinking, what kind of God would prune a branch that's already fruitful, that doesn't seem loving, that doesn't seem good. This is what we think, that's not gonna be on, on, a, on a screen, but what Jesus is saying, this context of this is so important. He's saying this less than 24 hours from the cross, and so we have to tap into that, where he's saying is what I'm about to do for you is not gonna seem good. What I'm about to do for you is not going to seem loving, but you have no idea. I will be pruned so that you might bear more fruit. I will be for you what you cannot be and do for you what you could not do to invite you into a belonging that is so much better, to invite you into who my Father wants you to be. And so here's what I want you to hear from that. The pruning of God in your life, no matter how much it may seem like this isn't true, the pruning of God in your life is not God punishing you. We have to make sure that, that those two things aren't synonymous, that the pruning of God is not God punishing us 
The struggles and the sufferings that we endure in this world is not God punishing us for our sins. And I can say that with all the confidence in the world because the Bible teaches that every ounce of the punishment for our sin was absorbed by Christ on the cross. And so there's none left for us. So if it's not punishment, then what is this pruning? In verse two, Jesus is saying if we abide in him, which means that we build our lives on the truth of who he is and what he's done and who he says we are as a result, then God says that he's gonna meet us, this is what the pruning is, God's gonna meet us in our lack of fruitfulness and he's not just gonna pull us up by the root and throw us out. He's gonna meet us in our lack of fruitfulness and he's going to shape us and prune us and refine us so that we can bear the fruit of the spirit in our lives. So that we can have more love and more joy and more peace. And so if you're a Christian, which means that you are following after Jesus, right? God promises pruning for his people and this is the grace and the love of God the Father in your life because he doesn't wanna leave you on the kitchen table. He doesn't wanna leave you propped up by a vase because you can't stand on your own, faking your way through life, pretending to be beautiful on the outside while on the inside you're dying. You're exhausted and you're ready to quit. God is refining you because he loves you because he wants to see you abiding in and planted in and trusting in the true vine, even if it means he has to cut back some of the areas of your life that are eventually gonna choke out you actually being fruitful. Even if it means we don't understand it, and so you don't, maybe you don't get the job that you applied for, or the next one, or the next one, or the next one. Maybe the relationship that you're in, that you've told all your friends, I think this is it. I think this is the one. Maybe that one ends out of the blue, and you're going, God, what are you doing? God, why could you let this happen to me? On the outside, it may seem like your life is cut back, like you're falling apart, but there's life in you because you're abiding in the true vine. This means that the pain that we feel as a result of living in a broken world has purpose. That not a single stroke from the shears of God will be wasted in your life. But just because your pain has purpose doesn't mean it's no longer painful. And so our temptation in these moments, when, when the circumstances of our life don't go the way we want them to, we, f- we have a temptation to feel abandoned, to feel like God has left us. And our gut reaction in those moments is to say, God, where are you? God, how could you let this happen to me? And I think this passage of scripture is saying that we need to ask a different question when the circumstances of our life don't go the way we want them to, instead of God, why? Not that that's a bad question, but I think there's a better question. Instead of God, why, it's God, what are you doing in my life right now that I can't see? God, you're, you're, you're cutting me back, you're pruning me, I feel it, right? When we hit the circumstances of our life that feel difficult, instead of going, God, why, or God, where are you, or God, why you've left me, why have you abandoned me, we ask a different question because we know this is true of God, what are you doing in my life that I can't see right now, that I can't understand how this is gonna go towards me bearing more fruit? Help me, God, to trust that you will use this to grow me. And the pruning of God is not him punishing you because our God doesn't send us to our room or kick us out of the house to think about what we've done. Right, he hasn't abandoned us. Even on our most difficult days, he hasn't given up on us. In fact, it's the opposite. It's in our most difficult days that the God of the universe is most near to us because he's pruning us, because the great vine dresser is there with us, holding us up. He's pruning and refining away all the things that will ultimately choke out what's good in us. And in the pain of those moments, he invites us to trust that in the same way that Jesus is the true vine, that God the Father is the great vine dresser, 
that he knows what he's doing in us. And friends, God's plan for you is always better than your plan for yourself. Always. There's an invitation to trust him in that. Even when it's difficult, right? Even when it's painful. Let's look at the last thing here, verse eight. By this, us bearing fruit, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I think what happens because of the world we live in and our tendency towards self-reliance or whatever, um, we can't read those verses the right way. So we read verse eight where it says, bear much fruit and prove my disciples. Prove you're my disciples. We read verse 10 that says, if you keep my commandments, if you will abide in my love, right? And our minds immediately go to what do I need to do to prove that I'm a disciple? What do I need to do to abide in his love? We think I gotta do better. I have to try harder. And in that, we're blind to the pattern that exists in verse nine. Let me read this for you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The first part of that verse is not contingent on the second part of that verse. It's not if you abide in my love, then I will love you. It is, it's I love you the same way the Father loves me, which is infinitely. And then he says, abide in my love. The com command in this text is to remain in his love for us, to live there, not go earn it. Jesus says, abide in that, right? Stay connected to that, dwell there, build your life on the fact that you are a son or a daughter of God, that you belong to him and you are loved by him. And I think Jesus says this because there is not a single person in the world who knows what that's like more than he does. To be loved by God the Father and yet not be disappointed, but he delights in us. And Jesus says, remain in that. That's what it means to be a Christian. Hours before the cross, he's saying, this is what I want you to get. Don't think you have to earn my love and approval. Just remain in it. Allow your life to spring forth from the power that flows through us when we know we are loved by God the Father, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything Jesus has done for us. And many of us have a desire to abide in Jesus, but we think that there's these things in the way. You're, you're, you're going, Pastor, I hear you. I wanna connect to Jesus. I wanna abide in him, but I have these things that I gotta figure out first. I have these things that I have to clean up first, but what Jesus is saying to his disciples and to you and me this morning, hours before the cross is we got it backwards when we think that way. Verse three says this, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, which means that you don't clean yourself up to go abide in Jesus, but you abide in Jesus and then he will clean you up. We tend to get this backwards. We feel dirty, we feel like it's up to me, I gotta do enough, I gotta try enough, I gotta be enough so that God will accept me. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not how it works. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, abide in my love. And then in verse 11 he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The refining of God is not him trying to take anything from you. It's for your joy, that he is inviting us to trust that he knows what he's doing. And don't miss that part where he says that my joy may be in you. Jesus is saying that it is possible for you to walk in the exact joy that he has in relationship with God the Father. And the key to unlocking that 
is not in do better and try harder. It's in remain and refine. That we would seek to remain in the love of God the Father for us in Christ and that we would expect to be refined. And we would remain even in that. So I'm gonna pray for us here in a moment, but before we move on, I just wanna give you a minute to just consider. You can bow your head if you want to. You can look straight at me if it's weird. I don't care. I just want you to consider where am I abiding? Like what have I attached myself to? What vine or vines have I attached myself to that I'm hoping that its power might flow through me and bear its fruit in me? The vine of approval, the vine of financial success or the vine of my career or whatever. But you would be honest with God in this moment and just answer the question, where am I abiding? There's a part of this text that scares us. Verse six, if anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and it withers and the branches are gathered and they're thrown into the fire and burned. All right, we get afraid of that. We're going, I don't, I don't wanna be burned. What do I need to do? And the command in this text is simply abide in my love. Sit there, dwell there, remain there, and then allow your obedience to him to flow from that space, not to think that you can earn it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us to be honest this morning. Ask for your help that your spirit would move in us. You would help us to abide. My guess is most of us want to. Maybe we don't know how. So would you point out to us, God, the things in our lives that make it easy for us to remember who you are and what you've done? And will we just seek to do those things as often as we can? And point out to us, God, the things in our life that make it difficult for us to remember who you are. That make us think it's up to us to earn enough, to do enough, to be enough. We rest in the truth of verse nine. For as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. God, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.